BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Book 1, Chapter 25 of War and Peace, Volume 1 by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter Twenty Five. At Bald Hills, Prince Nicholas Andreevich Bolkonsky's estate, the arrival of young Prince Andrew and his wife was daily expected, but this expectation did not upset the regular routine of life in the old prince's household. General in Chief Princess Nicholas Andreevich nicknamed in society the King of Prussia, ever since the Emperor Paul had exiled him to his country estate, had lived there continuously with his daughter, Princess Mary, and her companion, Mademoiselle Bourienne. Though in the new reign he was free to return to the capitals, he still continued to live in the country, remarking that anyone who wanted to see him could come the hundred miles from Moscow to Bald Hills, while he himself needed no one and nothing. He used to say that there are only two sources of human vice, idleness and superstition, and only two virtues, activity and intelligence. He himself undertook his daughter's education, and to develop these two cardinal virtues in her gave her lessons in algebra and geometry till she was twenty, and arranged her life so that her whole time was occupied. He himself was always occupied, writing his memoirs, solving problems in higher mathematics, turning snuff-boxes on a lathe, working in the garden, or superintending the building that was always going on at his estate. As regularity is a prime condition facilitating activity, regularity in his household was carried to the highest point of exactitude. He always came to table under precisely the same conditions, and not only at the same hour, but at the same minute. With those about him, from his daughter to his serfs, the prince was sharp and invariably exacting, so that without being a hard-hearted man he inspired such fear and respect as few hard-hearted men would have aroused. Although he was in retirement and had now no influence in political affairs, every high official appointed to the province in which the prince's estate lay considered it his duty to visit him and waited in the lofty antechamber just as the architect, gardener, or Princess Mary did 
till the prince appeared punctually to the appointed hour. Everyone sitting in his antechamber experienced the same feeling of respect and even fear when the enormously high study door opened and showed the figure of a rather small old man, with powdered wig, small withered hands, and bushy grey eyebrows, which, when he frowned, sometimes hid the gleam of his shrewd, youthfully glittering eyes. On the morning of the day that the young couple were to arrive, Princess Mary entered the antechamber as usual at the time appointed for the morning greeting, crossing herself with trepidation and repeating a silent prayer. Every morning she came in like that, and every morning prayed that the daily interview might pass off well. An old powdered manservant who was sitting in the antechamber rose quietly and said in a whisper, "'Please walk in.' Through the door came the regular hum of a lathe. The princess timidly opened the door, which moved noiselessly and easily. She paused at the entrance. The prince was working at the lathe, and after glancing round continued his work. The enormous study was full of things evidently in constant use. The large table covered with books and plans, the tall glass-fronted bookcases with keys in the locks, the high desk for writing while standing up, on which lay an open exercise book and the lathe, with tools laid ready to hand and shavings scattered around, all indicated continuous, varied, and orderly activity. The motion of the small foot shod in a tartar boot, embroidered with silver, and the firm pressure of the lean sinewy hand, showed that the prince still possessed the tenacious endurance and vigour of hardy old age. After a few more turns of the lathe, he removed his foot from the pedal, wiped his chisel, dropped it into a leather pouch attached to the lathe, and, approaching the table, summoned his daughter. He never gave his children a blessing, so he simply held out his bristly cheek, as yet unshaven, and regarding her tenderly and attentively, said severely, "'Quite well? All right, then. Sit down.' He took the exercise-book containing lessons in geometry written by himself and drew up a chair with his foot. "'For tomorrow.' said he, quickly finding the page and making a scratch from one paragraph to another with his hard nail. The princess bent over the exercise-book on the table. "'Wait a bit. Here's a letter for you,' said the old man suddenly, taking a letter addressed in a woman's hand from a bag hanging above the table, onto which he threw it. At the sight of the letter red patches showed themselves on the princess's face. She took it quickly and bent her head over it. "'From Heloise?' asked the prince, with a cold smile that showed his still sound yellowish teeth. "'Yes, it's from Julie,' replied the princess with a timid glance and a timid smile. "'I'll let two more letters pass, but the third I'll read,' said the prince sternly. "'I'm afraid you write much nonsense. I'll read the third. "'Read this, if you like, father,' said the princess, blushing still more and holding out the letter. "'The third! I said the third! cried the prince abruptly, pushing the letter away, and leaning his elbows on the table, he drew toward him the exercise-book containing geometrical figures. "'Well, madam,' he began, stooping over the book close to his daughter and placing an arm on the back of the chair in which she sat, so that she felt herself surrounded on all sides by the acrid scent of old age and tobacco, which she had known so long. "'Now, madam,' these triangles are equal. Please note that the angle ABC—" The princess looked in a scared way at her father's eyes glittering close to her. The red patches on her face came and went. 
and it was plain that she understood nothing, and was so frightened that her fear would prevent her understanding any of her father's further explanations, however clear they might be. Whether it was the teacher's fault or the pupil's, the same thing happened every day. The princess's eyes grew dim, she could not see and could not hear anything, but was only conscious of her stern father's withered face close to her, of his breath and the smell of him, and could think only of how to get away quickly to her own room to make out the problem in peace. The old man was beside himself, moved the chair in which he was sitting noisily backward and forward, made efforts to control himself and not become vehement, but almost always did become vehement, scolded, and sometimes flung the exercise book away. The princess gave a wrong answer. "'Well, now, isn't she a fool?' shouted the prince, pushing the book aside and turning sharply away. But rising immediately, he paced up and down, lightly touched his daughter's hair, and sat down again. He drew up his chair and continued to explain. "'This won't do, princess, it won't do,' said he when Princess Mary, having taken and closed the exercise book with the next day's lesson, was about to leave. "'Mathematics are most important, madam. I don't want to have you like our silly ladies. Get used to it, and you'll like it.' And he patted her cheek. "'It will drive all the nonsense out of your head.' She turned to go, but he stopped her with a gesture and took an uncut book from the high desk. Here is some sort of key to the mysteries that your Eloise has sent you. Religious. I don't interfere with anyone's belief. I have looked at it. Take it. Well, now go. Go." He patted her on the shoulder and himself closed the door after her. Princess Mary went back to her room with the sad, scared expression that rarely left her, and which made her plain, sickly face yet plainer. She sat down at her writing-table, on which stood miniature portraits, and which was littered with books and papers. The princess was as untidy as her father was tidy. She put down the geometry book and eagerly broke the seal of her letter. It was from her most intimate friend from childhood, that same Julie Karagina who had been at the Rostovs' name-day party. Julie wrote in French, "'Dear and precious friend, how terrible and frightful a thing is separation! Though I tell myself that half my life and half my happiness are wrapped up in you, and that in spite of the distance separating us, our hearts are united by indissoluble bonds, my heart rebels against fate, and in spite of the pleasures and distractions around me, I cannot overcome a certain secret sorrow that has been in my heart ever since we parted. Why are we not together as we were last summer, in your big study on the blue sofa, the confidential sofa? Why cannot I now, as three months ago, draw fresh moral strength from your look, so gentle, calm, and penetrating, a look I love so well, and seem to see before me as I write?" Having read thus far, Princess Mary sighed and glanced into the mirror which stood on her right. It reflected a weak, ungraceful figure and thin face. Her eyes, always sad, now looked with particular hopelessness at her reflection in the glass. "'She flatters me,' thought the princess, turning away and continuing to read. But Julie did not flatter her friend. The princess's eyes, large, deep, and luminous, it seemed as if at times there radiated from them shafts of warm light, 
were so beautiful that very often, in spite of the plainness of her face, they gave her an attraction more powerful than that of beauty. But the princess never saw the beautiful expression of her own eyes, the look they had when she was not thinking of herself. As with everyone, her face assumed a forced, unnatural expression as soon as she looked in a glass. She went on reading. All Moscow talks of nothing but war. One of my two brothers is already abroad, the other is with the guards, who are starting on their march to the frontier. Our dear Emperor has left Petersburg, and it is thought intends to expose his precious person to the chances of war. God grant that the Corsican monster who is destroying the peace of Europe may be overthrown by the angel whom it has pleased the Almighty, in his goodness, to give us as sovereign. To say nothing of my brothers, this war has deprived me of one of the associations nearest my heart. I mean young Nicholas Rostov, who, with his enthusiasm, could not bear to remain inactive, and has left the university to join the army. I will confess to you, dear Mary, that in spite of his extreme youth, his departure for the army was a great grief to me. This young man, of whom I spoke to you last summer, is so noble-minded and full of that real youthfulness which one seldom finds nowadays among our old men of twenty, and particularly he is so frank and has so much heart. He is so pure and poetic that my relations with him, transient as they were, have been one of the sweetest comforts to my poor heart, which has already suffered so much. Some day I will tell you about our parting and all that was said then. That is still too fresh. Ah, dear friend, you are happy not to know these poignant joys and sorrows. You are fortunate, for the latter are generally the stronger. I know very well that Count Nicholas is too young ever to be more to me than a friend, but this sweet friendship, this poetic and pure intimacy, were what my heart needed. But enough of this. The chief news, about which all Moscow gossips, is the death of old Count Bezukhov and his inheritance. Fancy! The three princesses have received very little, Prince Vasily nothing, and it is Monsieur Pierre who has inherited all the property, and has besides been recognized as legitimate. So that he is now Count Bezukhov and possessor of the finest fortune in Russia. It is rumored that Prince Vasily played a very despicable part in this affair, and that he returned to Petersburg quite crestfallen. I confess I understand very little about all these matters of wills and inheritance, but I do know that since this young man, whom we all used to know as plain Monsieur Pierre, has become Count Bezukhov and the owner of one of the largest fortunes in Russia, I am much amused to watch the change in the tone and manners of the mamas burdened by marriageable daughters, and of the young ladies themselves toward him, though between you and me he always seemed to me a poor sort of fellow. As for the past two years people have amused themselves by finding husbands for me, most of whom I don't even know, the matchmaking chronicles of Moscow now speak of me as the future Countess Bezukhova. But you will understand that I have no desire for the post. Apropos of marriages, do you know that, a while ago, that universal auntie Anna Mikhailovna told me, under the seal of strict secrecy, of a plan of marriage for you? It is neither more nor less than with Prince Vasily's son Anatole, whom they wish to reform by marrying him to someone rich and distingué, and it is on you that his relation's choice has fallen. I don't know what you will think of it, 
but I consider it my duty to let you know of it. He is said to be very handsome and a terrible scapegrace. That is all I have been able to find out about him. But enough of gossip. I am at the end of my second sheet of paper, and Mama has sent for me to go and dine at the Apraskins. Read the mystical book I am sending you. It has an enormous success here. Though there are things in it difficult for the feeble human mind to grasp, it is an admirable book which calms and elevates the soul. Adieu. Give my respects to Monsieur your father and my compliments to Mademoiselle Brienne. I embrace you as I love you, Julie. P.S. Let me have news of your brother and his charming little wife." The princess pondered a while with a thoughtful smile, and her luminous eyes lit up so that her face was entirely transformed. Then she suddenly rose and with her heavy tread went up to the table. She took a sheet of paper and her hand moved rapidly over it. This is the reply she wrote, also in French. Dear and precious friend, your letter of the thirteenth has given me great delight. So you still love me, my romantic Julie. Separation, of which you say so much that is bad, does not seem to have had its usual effect on you. You complain of our separation. What then should I say, if I dared complain, I, who am deprived of all who are dear to me? Ah, if we had not religion to console us, life would be very sad. Why do you suppose that I should look severely on your affectation for that young man? On such matters I am only severe with myself. I understand such feelings in others, and if never having felt them, I cannot approve of them, neither do I condemn them. Only it seems to me that Christian love, love of one's neighbor, love of one's enemy, is worthier, sweeter, and better than the feelings which the beautiful eyes of a young man can inspire in a romantic and loving young girl like yourself. The news of Count Bezukhov's death reached us before your letter, and my father was much affected by it. He says the Count was the last representative but one of the great century, and that it is his own turn now, and that he will do all he can to let his turn come as late as possible. God preserve us from that terrible misfortune. I cannot agree with you about Pierre, whom I knew as a child. He always seemed to me to have an excellent heart, and that is the quality I value most in people. As to his inheritance and the part played by Prince Vasily, it is very sad for both. Ah, my dear friend, our divine Saviour's words, that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, are terribly true. I pity Prince Vasily, but am still more sorry for Pierre. So young and burdened with such riches, to what temptations he will be exposed! If I were asked what I desired most on earth, it would be to be poorer than the poorest beggar. A thousand thanks, dear friend, for the volume you have sent me, and which has such success in Moscow. Yet, since you tell me that, among some good things, it contains others which our weak human understanding cannot grasp, it seems to me rather useless to spend time in reading what is unintelligible and can therefore bear no fruit. I never could understand the fondness some people have for confusing their minds by dwelling on mystical books that merely awaken their doubts and excite their imagination, giving them a bent for exaggeration quite contrary to Christian simplicity. Let us rather read the Epistles and Gospels. Let us not seek to penetrate what mysteries they contain 
for how can we, miserable sinners that we are, know the terrible and holy secrets of providence, while we remain in this flesh which forms an impenetrable veil between us and the Eternal? Let us rather confine ourselves to studying those sublime rules which our divine Saviour has left for our guidance here below. Let us try to conform to them and follow them, and let us be persuaded that the less we let our feeble human minds roam, the better we shall please God, who rejects all knowledge that does not come from Him. And the less we seek to fathom what He has been pleased to conceal from us, the sooner will He vouchsafe its revelation to us through His divine Spirit. My father has not spoken to me of a suitor, but has only told me that he has received a letter and is expecting a visit from Prince Vasili. In regard to this project of marriage for me, I will tell you, dear sweet friend, that I look on marriage as a divine institution to which we must conform. However painful it may be to me, should the Almighty lay the duties of wife and mother upon me, I shall try to perform them as faithfully as I can, without disquieting myself by examining my feelings toward him whom he may give me for husband. I have had a letter from my brother, who announces his speedy arrival at Bald Hills with his wife. This pleasure will be but a brief one, however, for he will leave us again to take part in this unhappy war into which we have been drawn, God knows how or why. Not only where you are, at the heart of affairs and of the world, is the talk all of war, even here amid fieldwork and the calm of nature, which townsfolk consider characteristic of the country, rumours of war are heard and painfully felt. My father talks of nothing but marches and countermarches, things of which I understand nothing. And the day before yesterday, during my daily walk through the village, I witnessed a heart-rending scene. It was a convoy of conscripts enrolled from our people and starting to join the army. You should have seen the state of the mothers, wives and children of the men who were going, and should have heard the sobs. It seems as though mankind has forgotten the laws of its divine Saviour, who preached love and forgiveness of injuries, and that men attribute the greatest merit to skill in killing one another. Adieu, dear and kind friend. May our divine Saviour and His Most Holy Mother keep you in their holy and all-powerful care. Mary Ah, you are sending off a letter, Princess. I have already dispatched mine. I have written to my poor mother," said the smiling Mademoiselle Brienne rapidly, in her pleasant mellow tones and with guttural R's. She brought into Princess Mary's strenuous, mournful, and gloomy world a quite different atmosphere, careless, light-hearted, and self-satisfied. "'Princess, I must warn you.' she added, lowering her voice and evidently listening to herself with pleasure and speaking with exaggerated grassement. The prince has been scolding Michael Ivanovitch. He is in a very bad humour, very morose. Be prepared." "'Ah, dear friend,' replied Princess Mary, "'I have asked you never to warn me of the humour my father is in. I do not allow myself to judge him and would not have others do so. The princess glanced at her watch, and seeing that she was five minutes late in starting her practice on the clavichord, went into the sitting-room with a look of alarm. Between twelve and two o'clock, as the day was mapped out, the prince rested and the princess played the clavichord. End of Book One, Chapter Twenty-Five
Book One, Chapter Twenty Six of War and Peace, Volume One by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter Twenty Six. The gray-haired valet was sitting drowsily listening to the snoring of the prince who was in his large study. From the far side of the house, through the closed doors, came the sound of difficult passages, twenty times repeated, of a sonata by Dussek. Just then a closed carriage and another with a hood drove up to the porch. Prince Andrew got out of the carriage, helped his little wife to alight, and let her pass into the house before him. Old Tikhon, wearing a wig, put his head out of the door of the antechamber, reported in a whisper that the prince was sleeping, and hastily closed the door. Tikhon knew that neither the son's arrival nor any other unusual event must be allowed to disturb the appointed order of the day. Prince Andrew apparently knew this as well as Tikhon. He looked at his watch, as if to ascertain whether his father's habits had changed since he was at home last, and having assured himself that they had not, he turned to his wife. "'He will get up in twenty minutes. Let us go across to Mary's room,' he said. The little princess had grown stouter during this time, but her eyes and her short downy smiling lip lifted when she began to speak just as merrily and prettily as ever. "'Why, this is a palace!' she said to her husband, looking around with the expression with which people compliment their host at a ball. "'Let's come, quick, quick!' And with a glance round she smiled at Tikhon, at her husband, and at the footman who accompanied them. "'Is that Mary practicing?' Let's go quietly and take her by surprise." Prince Andrew followed her with a courteous but sad expression. "'You've grown older, Tikhon,' he said in passing to the old man, who kissed his hand. Before they reached the room from which the sounds of the clavichord came, the pretty, fair-haired Frenchwoman, Mademoiselle Brienne, rushed out apparently beside herself with delight. "'Ah, what joy for the princess!' exclaimed she. At last! I must let her know!" "'No, no, please not! You are Mademoiselle Brienne,' said the little princess, kissing her. "'I know you already through my sister-in-law's friendship for you. She was not expecting us?' They went up to the door of the sitting-room from which came the sound of the oft-repeated passage of the sonata. Prince Andrew stopped and made a grimace, as if expecting something unpleasant. The little princess entered the room. The passage broke off in the middle, a cry was heard, then Princess Mary's heavy tread and the sound of kissing. When Prince Andrew went in, the two princesses, who had only met once before for a short time at his wedding, were in each other's arms, warmly pressing their lips to whatever place they happened to touch. Mademoiselle Brienne stood near them, pressing her hand to her heart, with a beatific smile and obviously equally ready to cry or to laugh. Prince Andrew shrugged his shoulders and frowned, as lovers of music do when they hear a false note. The two women let go of one another, and then, as if afraid of being too late, seized each other's hands, kissing them and pulling them away, and again began kissing each other on the face, and then, to Prince Andrew's surprise, both began to cry and kissed again. Mademoiselle Bourienne also began to cry. Prince Andrew evidently felt ill at ease but to the two women it seemed quite natural that they should cry, and apparently it never entered their heads that it could have been otherwise at this meeting. "'Ah, my dear! Ah, Mary!' they suddenly exclaimed, and then laughed. 
I dreamed last night. You were not expecting us? Ah, Mary, you have got thinner, and you have grown stouter. I knew the princess at once, put in Mademoiselle Bourienne. And I had no idea, exclaimed Princess Mary. Ah, Andrew, I did not see you. Prince Andrew and his sister, hand in hand, kissed one another, and he told her she was still the same crybaby as ever. Princess Mary had turned toward her brother, and through her tears, the loving, warm, gentle look of her large, luminous eyes, very beautiful at that moment, rested on Prince Andrew's face. The little princess talked incessantly, her short, downy upper lip continually and rapidly touching her rosy nether lip when necessary, and drawing up again next moment when her face broke into a smile of glittering teeth and sparkling eyes. She told of an accident they had had on the Spassky Hill, which might have been serious for her in her condition, and immediately after that informed them that she had left all her clothes in Petersburg, and that heaven knew what she would have to dress in here, and that Andrew had quite changed, and that Kitty Odinsova had married an old man, and that there was a suitor for Mary, a real one, but that they would talk of that later. Princess Mary was still looking silently at her brother, and her beautiful eyes were full of love and sadness. It was plain that she was following a train of thought independent of her sister-in-law's words. In the midst of a description of the last Petersburg fete, she addressed her brother. "'So, you are really going to the war, Andrew?' she said, sighing. Lisa sighed, too. "'Yes, and even tomorrow,' replied her brother. He is leaving me here, God knows why, when he might have had promotion." Princess Mary did not listen to the end, but continuing her train of thought turned to her sister-in-law with a tender glance at her figure. "'Is it certain?' she said. The face of the little princess changed. She sighed and said, "'Yes, quite certain. Ah, it is very dreadful.' Her lip descended. She brought her face close to her sister-in-law's and unexpectedly again began to cry. "'She needs rest,' said Prince Andrew, with a frown. "'Don't you, Lisa? Take her to your room, and I'll go to father. How is he? Just the same?' "'Yes, just the same. Though I don't know what your opinion will be,' answered the princess joyfully. "'And are the hours the same? And the walks in the avenues? And the lathe?' asked Prince Andrew, with a scarcely perceptible smile, which showed that, in spite of all his love and respect for his father, he was aware of his weaknesses. "'The hours are the same, and the lathe, and also the mathematics and my geometry lessons,' said Princess Mary gleefully, as if her lessons in geometry were among the greatest delights of her life. When the twenty minutes had elapsed and the time had come for the old prince to get up, Tikhon came to call the young prince to his father. The old man made a departure from his usual routine in honor of his son's arrival. He gave orders to admit him to his apartments while he dressed for dinner. The old prince always dressed in old-fashioned style, wearing an antique coat and powdered hair. And when Prince Andrew entered his father's dressing-room, not with the contemptuous look and manner he wore in drawing-rooms, but with the animated face with which he talked to Pierre, the old man was sitting on a large leather-covered chair, wrapped in a powdering mantle, entrusting his head to Tikhon. "'Ah, here's the warrior! Wants to vanquish Bonaparte?' said the old man, shaking his powdered head as much as the tail which Tikhon was holding fast to plate would allow. 
you at least must tackle him properly, or else if he goes on like this he'll soon have us two for his subjects. How are you?' And he held out his cheek. The old man was in a good temper after his nap before dinner. He used to say that a nap after dinner was silver, before dinner golden. He cast happy, sidelong glances at his son from under his thick, bushy eyebrows. Prince Andrew went up and kissed his father on the spot indicated to him. He made no reply on his father's favorite topic, making fun of the military men of the day, and more particularly of Bonaparte. "'Yes, father, I have come to you and brought my wife who is pregnant,' said Prince Andrew, following every movement of his father's face with an eager and respectful look. "'How is your health?' Only fools and rakes fall ill, my boy. You know me. I am busy from morning till night and abstemious, so of course I am well." "'Thank God,' said his son, smiling. "'God has nothing to do with it. Well, go on,' he continued, returning to his hobby. "'Tell me how the Germans have taught you to fight Bonaparte by this new science you call strategy.' Prince Andrew smiled. "'Give me time to collect my wits, father.' said he, with a smile that showed that his father's foibles did not prevent his son from loving and honoring him. "'Why, I have not yet had time to settle down.' "'Nonsense! Nonsense!' cried the old man, shaking his pigtail to see whether it was firmly plated, and grasping his by the hand. "'The house for your wife is ready. Princess Mary will take her there and show her over, and they'll talk nineteen to the dozen. That's their woman's way. I am glad to have her.' Sit down and talk. About Mickelson's army, I understand. Tolstoy's, too. A simultaneous expedition. But what's the southern army to do? Prussia is neutral, I know that. What about Austria?" said he, rising from his chair and pacing up and down the room followed by Tikhon, who ran after him, handing him different articles of clothing. What of Sweden? How will they cross Pomerania? Prince Andrew, seeing that his father insisted, began, at first reluctantly but gradually with more and more animation, and from habit changing unconsciously from Russian to French as he went on, to explain the plan of operation for the coming campaign. He explained how an army, ninety thousand strong, was to threaten Prussia so as to bring her out of her neutrality and draw her into the war, how part of that army was to join some Swedish forces at Stralsund, how two hundred and twenty thousand Austrians, with a hundred thousand Russians, were to operate in Italy and on the Rhine, how fifty thousand Russians and as many English were to land at Naples, and how a total force of five hundred thousand men was to attack the French from different sides. The old prince did not evince the least interest during this explanation, but as if he were not listening to it continued to dress while walking about, and three times unexpectedly interrupted. Once he stopped it by shouting, "'The white one! The white one!' This meant that Tikhon was not handing him the waistcoat he wanted. Another time he interrupted, saying, "'And will she soon be confined?' And shaking his head reproachfully, said, "'That's bad. Go on, go on.' The third interruption came when Prince Andrew was finishing his description. The old man began to sing, in the cracked voice of old age, "'Malbrook sans vatanguer, Dieu sait quand reviendra.' Marlborough is going to the wars, God knows when he'll return." His son only smiled. "'I don't say it's a plan I approve of,' said the son. "'I am only telling you what it is. 
Napoleon has also formed his plan by now, not worse than this one. Well, you have told me nothing new. And the old man repeated, meditatively and rapidly, Dieu sait quand reviendra. Go to the dining-room. End of Book One, Chapter Twenty-Six Book One, Chapter Twenty-Seven of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book One, Chapter Twenty-Seven. At the appointed hour, the prince, powdered and shaven, entered the dining room where his daughter-in-law, Princess Mary, and Mademoiselle Bourienne were already awaiting him, together with his architect who, by a strange caprice of his employers, was admitted to table, though the position of that insignificant individual was such as could certainly not have caused him to expect that honour. The prince, who generally kept very strictly to social distinctions, and rarely admitted even important government officials to his table, had unexpectedly selected Michael Ivanovitch, who always went into a corner to blow his nose on his checked handkerchief, to illustrate the theory that all men are equals, and had more than once impressed on his daughter that Michael Ivanovitch was not a whit worse than you or I. At dinner the prince usually spoke to the taciturn Michael Ivanovitch more often than to anyone else. In the dining-room, which like all the rooms in the house was exceedingly lofty, the members of the household and the footman, one behind each chair, stood waiting for the prince to enter. The head butler, napkin on arm, was scanning the setting of the table, making signs to the footman, and anxiously glancing from the clock to the door by which the prince was to enter. Prince Andrew was looking at a large gilt frame, new to him, containing the genealogical tree of the Princess Bolkonsky, opposite which hung another such frame with a badly painted portrait, evidently by the hand of the artist belonging to the estate, of a ruling prince in a crown an alleged descendant of Rurik, an ancestor of the Bolkonskys. Prince Andrew, looking again at that genealogical tree, shook his head, laughing as a man laughs who looks at a portrait so characteristic of the original as to be amusing. "'How thoroughly like him that is!' he said to Princess Mary, who had come up to him. Princess Mary looked at her brother in surprise. She did not understand what he was laughing at. Everything her father did inspired her with reverence and was beyond question. "'Everyone has his Achilles' heel,' continued Prince Andrew. "'Fancy, with his powerful mind, indulging in such nonsense!' Princess Mary could not understand the boldness of her brother's criticism, and was about to reply when the expected footsteps were heard coming from the study. The prince walked in quickly and jauntily, as was his wont as if intentionally contrasting the briskness of his manners with the strict formality of his house. At that moment the great clock struck two, and another with a shrill tone joined in from the drawing-room. The prince stood still. His lively glittering eyes from under their thick, bushy eyebrows sternly scanned all present, and rested on the little princess. She felt, as courtiers do when the Tsar enters, the sensation of fear and respect which the old man inspired in all around him. He stroked her hair and then patted her awkwardly on the back of her neck. "'I'm glad, glad to see you,' he said, looking attentively into her eyes, 
and then quickly went to his place and sat down. "'Sit down, sit down, sit down, Michael Ivanovitch.' He indicated a place beside him to his daughter-in-law. A footman moved the chair for her. "'Ho, ho!' said the old man, casting his eyes on her rounded figure. "'You've been in a hurry. That's bad.' He laughed in his usual dry, cold, unpleasant way, with his lips only and not with his eyes. "'You must walk, walk as much as possible, as much as possible,' he said. The little princess did not or did not wish to hear his words. She was silent and seemed confused. The prince asked her about her father, and she began to smile and talk. He asked about mutual acquaintances, and she became still more animated and chattered away giving him greetings from various people and retelling the town gossip. "'Countess Apraxina, poor thing, has lost her husband, and she has cried her eyes out,' she said, growing more and more lively. As she became animated, the prince looked at her more and more sternly, and suddenly, as if he had studied her sufficiently and had formed a definite idea of her, he turned away and addressed Michael Ivanovitch. "'Well, Michael Ivanovitch, our Bonaparte will be having a bad time of it. Prince Andrew—he always spoke thus of his son—has been telling me what forces are being collected against him. While you and I never thought much of him—' Michael Ivanovitch did not know at all when you and I had said such things about Bonaparte, but, understanding that he was wanted as a peg on which to hang the prince's favorite topic, he looked inquiringly at the young prince, wondering what would follow. "'He is a great tactician,' said the prince to his son, pointing to the architect. And the conversation again turned on the war, on Bonaparte and the generals and statesmen of the day. The old prince seemed convinced not only that all men of the day were mere babies who did not know the ABC of war or of politics, and that Bonaparte was an insignificant little Frenchy, successful only because there were no longer any Potemkins or Suvorovs left to oppose him, but he was also convinced that there were no political difficulties in Europe and no real war, but only a sort of puppet-show at which the men of the day were playing, pretending to do something real. Prince Andrew gaily bore with his father's ridicule of the new men, and drew him on and listened to him with evident pleasure. "'The past always seems good,' said he, but did not Suvarov himself fall into a trap Moreau set him, and from which he did not know how to escape? "'Who told you that? Who?' cried the prince. "'Suvarov!' And he jerked away his plate, which Tikhon briskly caught. "'Suvarov!' Consider, Prince Andrew, two, Frederick and Suvarov. Moreau! Moreau would have been a prisoner if Suvarov had had a free hand, but he had the Hofskriegsverst Schnapsrath on his hands. It would have puzzled the devil himself. When you get there, you'll find out what those Hofskriegsverstraths are. Suvarov couldn't manage them, so what chance has Michael Kutuzov? No, my dear boy, he continued. You and your generals won't get on against Bonaparte. You'll have to call in the French, so that birds of a feather may fight together. The German, Pollen, has been sent to New York in America to fetch the Frenchman Moreau," he said, alluding to the invitation made that year to Moreau to enter the Russian service. Wonderful! Were the Potemkins, Suvarovs, and Orlovs Germans? No, lad, either you fellows have all lost your wits, or I have outlived mine. May God help you, but we'll see what will happen. 
Bonaparte has become a great commander among them. Hm. I don't at all say that all the plans are good, said Prince Andrew. I am only surprised at your opinion of Bonaparte. You may laugh as much as you like, but all the same, Bonaparte is a great general. Michael Ivanovitch! cried the old prince to the architect, who, busy with his roast meat, hoped he had been forgotten. Didn't I tell you Bonaparte was a great tactician? Here, he says the same thing. To be sure, Your Excellency, replied the architect. The prince again laughed his frigid laugh. Bonaparte was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He has got splendid soldiers. Besides, he began by attacking Germans, and only idlers have failed to beat the Germans. Since the world began, everybody has beaten the Germans. They beat no one, except one another. He made his reputation fighting them." And the prince began explaining all the blunders which, according to him, Bonaparte had made in his campaigns and even in politics. His son made no rejoinder, but it was evident that whatever arguments were presented he was as little able as his father to change his opinion. He listened, refraining from a reply, and involuntarily wondered how this old man, living alone in the country for so many years, could know and discuss so minutely and acutely all the recent European military and political events. "'You think I'm an old man and don't understand the present state of affairs?' concluded his father. "'But it troubles me. I don't sleep at night. Come now, where has this great commander of yours shown his skill?' he concluded. "'That would take too long to tell,' answered the son. "'Well, then, go off to your Bonaparte.' Mademoiselle Bourienne, here's another admirer of that powder-monkey emperor of yours," he exclaimed in excellent French. "'You know, Prince, I am not a Bonapartist.' "'Dieu sait quand reviendra,' hummed the Prince out of tune, and, with a laugh still more so, he quitted the table. The little Princess, during the whole discussion and the rest of the dinner, sat silent, glancing with a frightened look now at her father-in-law and now at Princess Mary. When they left the table, she took her sister-in-law's arm and drew her into another room. "'What a clever man your father is,' said she. "'Perhaps that is why I am afraid of him.' "'Oh, he is so kind,' answered Princess Mary. End of Book One, Chapter 27book 1 chapter 28 of war and peace volume 1 by leo tolstoy translated by elmer maud this librivox recording is in the public domain book 1 chapter 28 prince andrew was to leave next evening the old prince not altering his routine retired as usual after dinner the little princess was in her sister-in-law's room prince andrew in a traveling coat without epaulets had been packing with his valet in the rooms assigned to him. After inspecting the carriage himself and seeing the trunks put in, he ordered the horses to be harnessed. Only those things he always kept with him remained in his room—a small box, a large canteen fitted with silver plate, two Turkish pistols and a sabre, a present from his father who had brought it from the siege of Ochakov. All these travelling effects of Prince Andrew's were in very good order new, clean, and in cloth covers carefully tied with tapes. 
when starting on a journey or changing their mode of life, men capable of reflection are generally in a serious frame of mind. At such moments one reviews the past and plans for the future. Prince Andrew's face looked very thoughtful and tender. With his hands behind him he paced briskly from corner to corner of the room, looking straight before him and thoughtfully shaking his head. Did he fear going to the war, or was he sad at leaving his wife? Perhaps both. But evidently he did not wish to be seen in that mood. For hearing footsteps in the passage, he hurriedly unclasped his hands, stopped at a table as if tying the cover of the small box, and assumed his usual tranquil and impenetrable expression. It was the heavy tread of Princess Mary that he heard. "'I hear you have given orders to harness,' she cried, panting. She had apparently been running. "'And I did so wish to have another talk with you alone. God knows how long we may again be parted. You are not angry with me for coming? You have changed so, Andrusha,' she added, as if to explain such a question. She smiled as she uttered his pet name, Andrusha. It was obviously strange to her to think that this stern, handsome man should be Andrusha, the slender, mischievous boy who had been her playfellow in childhood. "'And where is Lisa?' he asked, answering her question only by a smile. "'She was so tired that she has fallen asleep on the sofa in my room. Oh, Andrew, what a treasure of a wife you have!' said she, sitting down on the sofa, facing her brother. "'She is quite a child, such a dear merry child. I have grown so fond of her.' Prince Andrew was silent, but the princess noticed the ironical and contemptuous look that showed itself on his face. "'One must be indulgent to little weaknesses. Who is free from them, Andrew? Don't forget that she has grown up and been educated in society and so her position now is not a rosy one. We should enter into everyone's situation. To comprendre, ça tout pardonnaire. To understand all is to forgive all. Think what it must be for her, poor thing, after what she has been used to, to be parted from her husband and be left alone in the country in her condition. It's very hard." Prince Andrew smiled as he looked at his sister as we smile at those we think we thoroughly understand. "'You live in the country and don't think the life terrible?' he replied. "'I? That's different. Why speak of me? I don't want any other life and can't, for I know no other. But think, Andrew, for a young society woman to be buried in the country during the best years of her life all alone, for Papa is always busy and I—' Well, you know what poor resources I have for entertaining a woman used to the best society. There is only Mademoiselle Bourienne." "'I don't like your Mademoiselle Bourienne at all,' said Prince Andrew. "'No. She is very nice and kind, and above all she is much to be pitied. She has no one, no one. To tell the truth, I don't need her, and she's even in my way. You know I always was a savage and now am even more so. I like being alone. Father likes her very much. She and Michael Ivanovitch are the two people to whom he is always gentle and kind, because he has been a benefactor to them both. As Stern says, we don't love people so much for the good they have done us as for the good we have done them. Father took her when she was homeless after losing her own father. 
She is very good-natured, and my father likes her way of reading. She reads to him in the evenings and reads splendidly. To be frank, Mary, I expect father's character sometimes makes things trying for you, doesn't it? Prince Andrew asked suddenly. Princess Mary was first surprised, and then aghast at this question. For me? For me? Trying for me? said she. He always was rather harsh, and now I should think he's getting very trying," said Prince Andrew, apparently speaking lightly of their father, in order to puzzle or test his sister. "'You are good in every way, Andrew, but you have a kind of intellectual pride,' said the Princess, following the train of her own thoughts rather than the trend of the conversation. "'And that's a great sin. How can one judge father? But even if one might, what feeling except veneration could such a man as my father evoke? And I am so contented and happy with him. I only wish you were all as happy as I am." Her brother shook his head incredulously. "'The only thing that is hard for me—I will tell you the truth, Andrew—is father's way of treating religious subjects. I don't understand how a man of his immense intellect can fail to see what is as clear as day, and can go so far astray. That is the only thing that makes me unhappy. But even in this I can see lately a shade of improvement. His satire has been less bitter of late, and there was a monk he received and had a long talk with." "'Ah, my dear, I am afraid you and your monk are wasting your powder,' said Prince Andrew, banteringly yet tenderly. "'Ah, mon ami, I only pray and hope that God will hear me.' Andrew she said timidly after a moment's silence. "'I have a great favor to ask of you.' "'What is it, dear?' "'No, promise that you will not refuse. It will give you no trouble, and is nothing unworthy of you, but it will comfort me. Promise, Andrusha,' said she, putting her hand in her reticule, but not yet taking out what she was holding inside it, as if what she held were the subject of her request, and must not be shown before the request was granted. She looked timidly at her brother. "'Even if it were a great deal of trouble,' answered Prince Andrew, as if guessing what it was about. "'Think what you please. I know you are just like father. Think as you please, but do this for my sake. Please do. Father's father, our grandfather, wore it in all his wars.' She still did not take out what she was holding in her reticule. So you promise? Of course. What is it? Andrew, I bless you with this icon, and you must promise me you will never take it off. Do you promise? If it does not weigh a hundredweight and won't break my neck, to please you, said Prince Andrew. But immediately, noticing the pained expression his joke had brought to his sister's face, he repented and added, I am glad. Really, dear, I am very glad." "'Against your will he will save and have mercy on you and bring you to himself, for in him alone is truth and peace,' said she in a voice trembling with emotion, solemnly holding up in both hands before her brother a small, oval, antique, dark-faced icon of the Saviour in a gold setting, on a finely wrought silver chain. She crossed herself, kissed the icon, and handed it to Andrew. "'Please, Andrew, for my sake!' 
rays of gentle light shone from her large, timid eyes. Those eyes lit up the whole of her thin, sickly face and made it beautiful. Her brother would have taken the icon, but she stopped him. Andrew understood, crossed himself, and kissed the icon. There was a look of tenderness, for he was touched, but also a gleam of irony on his face. "'Thank you, my dear.' She kissed him on the forehead and sat down again on the sofa. They were silent for a while. "'As I was saying to you, Andrew, be kind and generous as you always used to be. Don't judge Lisa harshly,' she began. "'She is so sweet, so good-natured, and her position now is a very hard one.' I do not think I have complained of my wife to you, Masha, or blamed her. Why do you say all this to me?" Red patches appeared on Princess Mary's face, and she was silent, as if she felt guilty. "'I have said nothing to you, but you have already been talked to. And I am sorry for that,' he went on. The patches grew deeper on her forehead, neck, and cheeks. She tried to say something, but could not. Her brother had guessed right. The little princess had been crying after dinner and had spoken of her forebodings about her confinement and how she dreaded it, and had complained of her fate, her father-in-law, and her husband. After crying she had fallen asleep. Prince Andrew felt sorry for his sister. "'Know this, Masha. I can't reproach, have not reproached, and never shall reproach my wife with anything. And I cannot reproach myself with anything in regard to her.' and that always will be so in whatever circumstances I may be placed. But if you want to know the truth, if you want to know whether I am happy, no. Is she happy? No. But why this is so, I don't know." As he said this, he rose, went to his sister, and stooping, kissed her forehead. His fine eyes lit up with a thoughtful, kindly, and unaccustomed brightness but he was looking not at his sister, but over her head toward the darkness of the open doorway. "'Let us go to her. I must say good-bye. Or go and wake and I'll come in a moment. Petrushka,' he called to his valet, "'come here. Take these away. Put this on the seat and this to the right.' Princess Mary rose and moved to the door, then stopped and said, "'Andrew, if you had faith—' you would have turned to God and asked Him to give you the love you do not feel, and your prayer would have been answered." "'Well, maybe,' said Prince Andrew. "'Go, Masha. I'll come immediately.' On the way to his sister's room, in the passage which connected one wing with the other, Prince Andrew met Mademoiselle Bourienne, smiling sweetly. It was the third time that day that, with an ecstatic and artless smile, she had met him in secluded passages. Oh, I thought you were in your room," she said, for some reason blushing and dropping her eyes. Prince Andrew looked sternly at her, and an expression of anger suddenly came over his face. He said nothing to her but looked at her forehead and hair, without looking at her eyes, with such contempt that the Frenchwoman blushed and went away without a word. When he reached his sister's room his wife was already awake and her merry voice, hurrying one word after another, came through the open door. She was speaking as usual in French, and as if after long self-restraint she wished to make up for lost time. 
No, but imagine the old Countess Zubova, with false curls and her mouth full of false teeth, as if she were trying to cheat old age. Ha, ha, ha! Mary! This very sentence about Countess Zubova and this same laugh, Prince Andrew had already heard from his wife in the presence of others some five times. He entered the room softly. The little princess, plump and rosy, was sitting in an easy-chair with her work in her hands, talking incessantly, repeating Petersburg reminiscences and even phrases. Prince Andrew came up, stroked her hair, and asked if she felt rested after their journey. She answered him and continued her chatter. The coach with six horses was waiting at the porch. It was an autumn night, so dark that the coachman could not see the carriage-pole. Servants with lanterns were bustling about in the porch. The immense house was brilliant with light shining through its lofty windows. The domestic serfs were crowding in the hall, waiting to bid good-bye to the young prince. The members of the household were all gathered in the reception hall, Michael Ivanovitch, Mademoiselle Burienne, Princess Mary, and the little princess. Prince Andrew had been called to his father's study, as the latter wished to say good-bye to him alone. All were waiting for them to come out. When Prince Andrew entered the study, the old man in his old-age spectacles and white dressing-gown, in which he received no one but his son, sat at the table writing. He glanced round. "'Going?' And he went on writing. "'I have come to say good-bye.' "'Kiss me here,' and he touched his cheek. "'Thanks, thanks.' "'What do you thank me for?' for not dilly-dallying and not hanging to a woman's apron-strings. The service before everything. Thanks, thanks." And he went on writing, so that his quill spluttered and squeaked. "'If you have anything to say, say it. These two things can be done together,' he added. "'About my wife. I am ashamed as it is to leave her on your hands. Why talk nonsense? Say what you want.' When her confinement is due, send to Moscow for an accoucheur. Let him be here." The old prince stopped writing, and, as if not understanding, fixed his stern eyes on his son. "'I know that no one can help if nature does not do her work,' said Prince Andrew, evidently confused. "'I know that, out of a million cases, only one goes wrong. But it is her fancy, and mine they have been telling her things. She has had a dream and is frightened." "'Hm! Hm!' muttered the old prince to himself, finishing what he was writing. "'I'll do it.' He signed with a flourish and suddenly turning to his son began to laugh. "'It's a bad business, eh?' "'What is bad, father?' "'The wife,' said the old prince briefly and significantly. "'I don't understand.' said Prince Andrew. "'No, it can't be helped, lad,' said the Prince. "'They're all like that. One can't unmarry. Don't be afraid. I won't tell anyone, but you know it yourself.' He seized his son by the hand with small bony fingers, shook it, looked straight into his son's face with keen eyes, which seemed to see through him, and again laughed his frigid laugh. The son sighed thus admitting that his father had understood him. The old man continued to fold and seal his letter, 
snatching up and throwing down the wax, the seal and the paper, with his accustomed rapidity. "'What's to be done? She's pretty. I will do everything. Make your mind easy,' said he in abrupt sentences while sealing his letter. Andrew did not speak. He was both pleased and displeased that his father understood him. The old man got up and gave the letter to his son. "'Listen,' said he, "'don't worry about your wife. What can be done shall be. Now listen. Give this letter to Michael Ilyaronovich Kutuzov. I have written that he should make use of you in proper places, and not keep you long as an adjutant, a bad position. Tell him I remember and like him. Write and tell me how he receives you. If he is all right, serve him. Nicholas Bolkonsky's son need not serve under anyone if he is in disfavor. Now come here." He spoke so rapidly that he did not finish half his words, but his son was accustomed to understand him. He led him to the desk, raised the lid, drew out a drawer, and took out an exercise book filled with his bold, tall, close handwriting. "'I shall probably die before you. So remember, these are my memoirs. Hand them to the Emperor after my death. Now here is a Lombard bond and a letter. It is a premium for the man who writes a history of Suvorov's wars. Send it to the Academy. Here are some jottings for you to read when I am gone. You will find them useful." Andrew did not tell his father that he would no doubt live a long time yet. He felt that he must not say it. "'I will do it all, father,' he said. "'Well, now, good-bye.' He gave his son his hand to kiss and embraced him. "'Remember this, Prince Andrew. If they kill you, it will hurt me, your old father.' He paused unexpectedly and then in a querulous voice suddenly shrieked, "'But if I hear that you have not behaved like the son of Nicholas Bolkonsky, I shall be ashamed!' "'You need not have said that to me, father,' said the son with a smile. The old man was silent. "'I also wanted to ask you,' continued Prince Andrew, "'if I am killed, and if I have a son, do not let him be taken away from you. As I said yesterday, let him grow up with you, please." "'Not let his wife have him?' said the old man, and laughed. They stood silent, facing one another. The old man's sharp eyes were fixed straight on his son's. Something twitched in the lower part of the old prince's face. "'We've said good-bye. Go!' he suddenly shouted in a loud, angry voice, opening his door. "'What is it? What?' asked both princesses when they saw for a moment at the door Prince Andrew and the figure of the old man in a white dressing-gown, spectacled and wigless, shouting in an angry voice. Prince Andrew sighed and made no reply. "'Well,' he said, turning to his wife. And this well sounded coldly ironic, as if he were saying, "'Now go through your performance.' "'Andrew, already!' said the little princess, turning pale and looking with dismay at her husband. He embraced her. She screamed and fell unconscious on his shoulder. He cautiously released the shoulder she leaned on, looked into her face, and carefully placed her in an easy-chair. "'Adieu, Mary,' said he gently to his sister, taking her by the hand and kissing her, and then he left the room with rapid steps. 
The little princess lay in the armchair, Mademoiselle Bourienne chafing her temples. Princess Mary, supporting her sister-in-law, still looked with her beautiful eyes full of tears at the door through which Prince Andrew had gone and made the sign of the cross in his direction. From the study, like pistol-shots, came the frequent sound of the old man angrily blowing his nose. Hardly had Prince Andrew gone when the study door opened quickly and the stern figure of the old man in the white dressing-gown looked out. "'Gone? That's all right,' said he, and looking angrily at the unconscious little princess, he shook his head reprovingly and slammed the door. End of Book One, 1805book 2 chapter 1 of war and peace volume 1 by leo tolstoy translated by elmer maud this librivox recording is in the public domain book 2 1805 chapter 1 in october 1805 a russian army was occupying the villages and towns of the archduchy of austria and yet other regiments freshly arriving from russia were settling near the fortress of Braunau, and burdening the inhabitants on whom they were quartered. Braunau was the headquarters of the commander-in-chief Kutuzov. On October 11, 1805, one of the infantry regiments that had just reached Braunau had halted half a mile from the town, waiting to be inspected by the commander-in-chief. Despite the un-Russian appearance of the locality and surroundings, fruit gardens, stone fences, tiled roofs and hills in the distance, and despite the fact that the inhabitants, who gazed with curiosity at the soldiers, were not Russians, the regiment had just the appearance of any Russian regiment preparing for an inspection anywhere in the heart of Russia. On the evening of the last day's march an order had been received that the commander-in-chief would inspect the regiment on the march. Though the words of the order were not clear to the regimental commander, and the question arose whether the troops were to be in marching order or not, it was decided at a consultation between the battalion commanders to present the regiment in parade order, on the principle that it is always better to bow too low than not bow low enough. So the soldiers, after a twenty-mile march, were kept mending and cleaning all night long without closing their eyes, while the adjutants and company commanders calculated and reckoned, and by morning the regiment, instead of the straggling, disorderly crowd it had been on its last march the day before, presented a well-ordered array of two thousand men, each of whom knew his place and his duty, had every button and every strap in place, and shone with cleanliness. And not only externally was all in order, but had it pleased the commander-in-chief to look under the uniforms, he would have found on every man a clean shirt, and in every knapsack the appointed number of articles all soap and all, as the soldiers say. There was only one circumstance concerning which no one could be at ease. It was the state of the soldiers' boots. More than half the men's boots were in holes. But this defect was not due to any fault of the regimental commander, for in spite of repeated demands boots had not been issued by the Austrian commissariat, and the regiment had marched some seven hundred miles. The commander of the regiment was an elderly, choleric, stout and thick-set general, with grizzled eyebrows and whiskers, and wider from chest to back than across the shoulders. He had on a brand-new uniform showing the creases where it had been folded, 
and thick gold epaulets which seemed to stand rather than lie down on his massive shoulders. He had an air of a man happily performing one of the most solemn duties of his life. He walked about in front of the line and at every step pulled himself up, slightly arching his back. It was plain that the commander admired his regiment, rejoiced in it, and that his whole mind was engrossed by it. Yet his strut seemed to indicate that, besides military matters, social interests and the fair sex occupied no small part of his thoughts. "'Well, Michael Mitritz, sir,' he said, addressing one of the battalion commanders who smilingly pressed forward. It was plain that they both felt happy. "'We had our hands full last night. However, I think the regiment is not a bad one, eh?' The battalion commander perceived the jovial irony and laughed. It would not be turned off the field even on the Turritzen meadow. What? asked the commander. At that moment, on the road from the town in which signalers had been posted, two men appeared on horseback. They were an aide-de-camp followed by a Cossack. The aide-de-camp was sent to confirm the order which had not been clearly worded the day before, namely, that the commander-in-chief wished to see the regiment just in the state in which it had been on the march in their greatcoats and packs and without any preparation whatever. A member of the Hofkriegsgrath from Vienna had come to Kutuzov the day before, with proposals and demands for him to join up with the army of the Archduke Ferdinand and Mack, and Kutuzov, not considering this junction advisable, meant, among other arguments in support of his view, to show the Austrian general the wretched state in which the troops arrived from Russia. With this object, he intended to meet the regiment so the worse the condition it was in, the better pleased the commander-in-chief would be. Though the aide-de-camp did not know these circumstances, he nevertheless delivered the definite order that the men should be in their greatcoats and in marching order, and that the commander-in-chief would otherwise be dissatisfied. On hearing this, the regimental commander hung his head, silently shrugged his shoulders, and spread out his arms with a choleric gesture. "'A fine mess we've made of it,' he remarked. There now, didn't I tell you, Michael Mitrich, that if it was said on the march it meant in greatcoats? said he reproachfully to the battalion commander. Oh, my God! he added, stepping resolutely forward. Company commanders! he shouted in a voice accustomed to command. Sergeant's major! How soon will he be here? he asked the aide de camp with a respectful politeness evidently relating to the personage he was referring to. In an hour's time, I should say. Shall we have time to change clothes? I don't know, General. The regimental commander, going up to the line himself, ordered the soldiers to change into their greatcoats. The company commanders ran off to their companies, the sergeant's major began bustling, the greatcoats were not in very good condition, and instantly the squares that had up to then been in regular order and silent began to sway and stretch and hum with voices. On all sides soldiers were running to and fro, throwing up their knapsacks with a jerk of their shoulders and pulling the straps over their heads, unstrapping their overcoats and drawing the sleeves on with upraised arms. In half an hour all was again in order, only the squares had become gray instead of black. The regimental commander walked with his jerky steps to the front of the regiment and examined it from a distance. "'Whatever is this? This!' he shouted and stood still. "'Commander of the Third Company!' "'Commander of the Third Company wanted by the General. Commander to the General. Third Company to the Commander.' 
The words passed along the lines, and an adjutant ran to look for the missing officer. When the eager but misrepeated words had reached their destination in a cry of, "'The general to the third company!' the missing officer appeared from behind his company, and, though he was a middle-aged man and not in the habit of running, trotted awkwardly stumbling on his toes toward the general. The captain's face showed the uneasiness of a schoolboy who is told to repeat a lesson he has not learned. Spots appeared on his nose, the redness of which was evidently due to intemperance, and his mouth twitched nervously. The general looked the captain up and down as he came up panting, slackening his pace as he approached. "'You will soon be dressing your men in petticoats! What is this?' shouted the regimental commander, thrusting forward his jaw and pointing at a soldier in the ranks of the third company, in a greatcoat of bluish cloth, which contrasted with the others. "'What have you been after? The commander-in-chief is expected, and you leave your place?' Eh? I'll teach you to dress the men in fancy coats for a parade, eh?" The commander of the company, with his eyes fixed on his superior, pressed two fingers more and more rigidly to his cap, as if in this pressure lay his only hope of salvation. "'Well, why don't you speak? Whom have you got there dressed up as a Hungarian?' said the commander with an austere jibe. "'Your Excellency—' "'Well?' Your Excellency what? Your Excellency! But what about Your Excellency? Nobody knows!" Your Excellency, it's the officer Dolokhov, who has been reduced to the ranks," said the captain softly. Well, has he been degraded into a field-marshal or into a soldier? If a soldier, he should be dressed in regulation uniform like the others. Your Excellency, you gave him leave yourself on the march. Gave him leave? Leave? That's just like you young men," said the regimental commander, cooling down a little. Leave, indeed. One says a word to you, and you—what? he added with renewed irritation. I beg you to dress your men decently. And the commander, turning to look at the adjutant, directed his jerky steps down the line. He was evidently pleased at his own display of anger and walking up to the regiment wished to find a further excuse for wrath. Having snapped at an officer for an unpolished badge, at another because his line was not straight, he reached the third company. "'How are you standing? Where's your leg? Your leg!' shouted the commander, with a tone of suffering in his voice, while there were still five men between him and Dolokhov with his bluish-gray uniform. Dolokhov slowly straightened his bent knee looking straight with his clear, insolent eyes in the general's face. "'Why a blue coat? Off with it! Sergeant Major, change his coat! The rest—' He did not finish. "'General, I must obey orders, but I am not bound to endure—' Dolokhov hurriedly interrupted. "'No talking in the ranks! No talking! No talking!' "'Not bound to endure insults!' Dolokhov concluded in loud, ringing tones. The eyes of the general and the soldier met. The general became silent, angrily pulling down his tight scarf. "'I request you to have the goodness to change your coat,' he said as he turned away. End of Book Two, Chapter One
Book Two, Chapter Two, of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Two. He's coming! Shouted the signaller at that moment. The regimental commander, flushing, ran to his horse, seized the stirrup with trembling hands threw his body across the saddle, righted himself, drew his sabre, and with a happy and resolute countenance, opening his mouth awry, prepared to shout. The regiment fluttered like a bird preening its plumage and became motionless. "'Attention!' shouted the regimental commander in a soul-shaking voice which expressed joy for himself, severity for the regiment, and welcome for the approaching chief. Along the broad country road, edged on both sides by trees, came a high, light blue Viennese calèche, slightly creaking on its springs and drawn by six horses at a smart trot. Behind the calèche galloped the suite, and a convoy of Croats. Beside Kutuzov sat an Austrian general, in a white uniform that looked strange among the Russian black ones. The calèche stopped in front of the regiment. Kutuzov and the Austrian general were talking in low voices and Kutuzov smiled slightly as, treading heavily, he stepped down from the carriage, just as if those two thousand men breathlessly gazing at him and the regimental commander did not exist. The word of command rang out, and again the regiment quivered, as with a jingling sound it presented arms. Then amidst a dead silence the feeble voice of the commander-in-chief was heard. The regiment roared, "'Health to your ex! Lead! Lead! Lancey!' and again all became silent. At first Kutuzov stood still while the regiment moved, then he and the general in white, accompanied by the suite, walked between the ranks. From the way the regimental commander saluted the commander-in-chief and devoured him with his eyes, drawing himself up obsequiously, and from the way he walked through the ranks behind the generals, bending forward and hardly able to restrain his jerky movements, and from the way he darted forward at every word or gesture of the commander-in-chief, it was evident that he performed his duty as a subordinate with even greater zeal than his duty as a commander. Thanks to the strictness and assiduity of its commander, the regiment, in comparison with others that had reached Braunau at the same time, was in splendid condition. There were only two hundred seventeen sick and stragglers. Everything was in good order, except the boots. Kutuzov walked through the ranks, sometimes stopping to say a few friendly words to officers he had known in the Turkish war, sometimes also to the soldiers. Looking at their boots, he several times shook his head sadly, pointing them out to the Austrian general with an expression which seemed to say that he was not blaming anyone, but could not help noticing what a bad state of things it was. The regimental commander ran forward at each such occasion, fearing to miss a single word of the commander-in-chief's regarding the regiment. Behind Kutuzov, at a distance that allowed every softly spoken word to be heard, followed some twenty men of his suite. These gentlemen talked among themselves and sometimes laughed. Nearest of all to the commander-in-chief walked a handsome adjutant. This was Prince Bolkonsky. Beside him was his comrade Nezvitsky a tall staff-officer, extremely stout, with a kindly, smiling, handsome face and moist eyes. Nesvitsky could hardly keep from laughter provoked by a swarthy hussar officer who walked beside him. 
This hussar, with a grave face and without a smile or a change in the expression of his fixed eyes, watched the regimental commander's back and mimicked his every movement. Every time the commander started and bent forward, the hussar started and bent forward in exactly the same manner. Nesvitsky laughed and nudged the others to make them look at the wag. Kutuzov walked slowly and languidly past thousands of eyes which were starting from their sockets to watch their chief. On reaching the third company he suddenly stopped. His suite, not having expected this, involuntarily came closer to him. "'Ah, Timokhin!' said he, recognizing the red-nosed captain who had been reprimanded on account of the blue greatcoat. One would have thought it impossible for a man to stretch himself more than Timokhin had done when he was reprimanded by the regimental commander, but now that the commander-in-chief addressed him, he drew himself up to such an extent that it seemed he could not have sustained it had the commander-in-chief continued to look at him. And so Kutuzov, who evidently understood his case and wished him nothing but good, quickly turned away, a scarcely perceptible smile flitting over his scarred and puffy face. "'Another Ismail comrade,' said he, "'a brave officer. Are you satisfied with him?' he asked the regimental commander. And the latter, unconscious that he was being reflected in the hussar officer as in a looking-glass, started, moved forward, and answered, "'Highly satisfied, Your Excellency.' "'We all have our weaknesses,' said Kutuzov, smiling and walking away from him. "'He used to have a predilection for Bacchus.' The regimental commander was afraid he might be blamed for this and did not answer. The hussar at that moment noticed the face of the red-nosed captain and his drawn-in stomach, and mimicked his expression and pose with such exactitude that Nesvitsky could not help laughing. Kutuzov turned round. The officer evidently had complete control of his face, and while Kutuzov was turning managed to make a grimace and then assume a most serious, deferential, and innocent expression. The third company was the last, and Kutuzov pondered, apparently trying to recollect something. Prince Andrew stepped forward from among the suite and said in French, "'You told me to remind you of the officer Dolokhov, reduced to the ranks in this regiment.' "'Where is Dolokhov?' asked Kutuzov. Dolokhov, who had already changed into a soldier's grey greatcoat, did not wait to be called. The shapely figure of the fair-haired soldier, with his clear blue eyes, stepped forward from the ranks, went up to the commander-in-chief, and presented arms. "'Have you a complaint to make?' Kutuzov asked with a slight frown. "'This is Dolokhov,' said Prince Andrew. "'Ah,' said Kutuzov, "'I hope this will be a lesson to you. Do your duty. The Emperor is gracious, and I shan't forget you if you deserve well.' The clear blue eyes looked at the commander-in-chief just as boldly as they had looked at the regimental commander, seeming by their expression to tear open the veil of convention that separates a commander-in-chief so widely from a private. "'One thing I ask of your excellency,' Dolokhov said in his firm, ringing, deliberate voice, "'I ask an opportunity to atone for my fault and prove my devotion to His Majesty the Emperor and to Russia.' Kutuzov turned away. The same smile of the eyes with which he had turned from Captain Timokhin again flitted over his face. He turned away with a grimace, as if to say that everything Dolokhov had said to him and everything he could say had long been known to him, that he was weary of it and it was not at all what he wanted. 
he turned away and went to the carriage. The regiment broke up into companies, which went to their appointed quarters near Braunau, where they hoped to receive boots and clothes and to rest after their hard marches. "'You won't bear me a grudge, Prokhor Ignatich?' said the regimental commander, overtaking the third company on its way to his quarters, and riding up to Captain Timokhin, who was walking in front. The regimental commander's face, now that the inspection was happily over, beamed with irrepressible delight. "'It's in the Emperor's service. It can't be helped. One is sometimes a bit hasty on parade. I'm the first to apologize. You know me.' He was very pleased. And he held out his hand to the captain. "'Don't mention it, General, as if I'd be so bold,' replied the captain, his nose growing redder as he gave a smile which showed where two front teeth were missing that had been knocked out by the butt-end of a gun at Ismail. "'And tell Mr. Dolokhov that I won't forget him. He may be quite easy. And tell me, please, I've been meaning to ask, how is he behaving himself, and in general?' "'As far as the service goes, he is quite punctilious, Your Excellency.' But his character," said Timokhin. "'And what about his character?' asked the regimental commander. "'It's different on different days,' answered the captain. "'One day he is sensible, well-educated, and good-natured, and the next he's a wild beast. In Poland, if you please, he nearly killed a Jew.' "'Oh, well, well,' remarked the regimental commander. "'Still one must have pity on a young man in misfortune.' You know he has important connections. Well, then, you just—' "'I will, Your Excellency,' said Timokhin, showing by his smile that he understood his commander's wish. "'Well, of course, of course.' The regimental commander sought out Dolokhov in the ranks, and, reining in his horse, said to him, "'After the next affair, epaulets!' Dolokhov looked round, but did not say anything, nor did the mocking smile on his lips change. "'Well, that's all right,' continued the regimental commander. "'A cup of vodka for the men from me,' he added, so that the soldiers could hear. "'I thank you all. God be praised!' And he rode past that company and overtook the next one. "'Well, he's really a good fellow. One can serve under him,' said Tomokin to the subaltern beside him. "'In a word, a hearty one,' said the subaltern, laughing. The regimental commander was nicknamed King of Hearts. The cheerful mood of their officers after the inspection infected the soldiers. The company marched on gaily. Soldiers' voices could be heard on every side. "'And they say Kutuzov was blind of one eye? And so he is, quite blind. No, friend, he is sharper-eyed than you are. Boots and leg-bands, he noticed everything.' When he looked at my feet, friend, well, thinks I, and that other one with him, the Austrian, looked as if he were smeared with chalk, as white as flour. I suppose they polish him up as they do the guns. I say, Fideshin, did he say when the battles are to begin? You were near him. Everybody said that Bonaparte himself was at Braunau. Bonaparte himself! Just listen to the fool, what he doesn't know! The Prussians are up in arms now. The Austrians, you see, are putting them down. When they've been put down, the war with Bonaparte will begin. And he says Bonaparte is in Braunau. Shows you're a fool. You'd better listen more carefully. 
What devils these quartermasters are! See, the fifth company is turning into the village already. They will have their buckwheat cooked before we reach our quarters. Give me a biscuit, you devil! And did you give me tobacco yesterday? That's just it, friend. Ah, well, never mind. Here you are. They might call a halt here, or we'll have to do another four miles without eating. Wasn't it fine when those Germans gave us lifts? You just sit still and are drawn along. And here, friend, the people are quite beggarly. There they all seem to be Poles, all under the Russian crown, but here they're all regular Germans. Singers to the front! came the captain's order. And from the different ranks some twenty men ran to the front. A drummer, their leader, turned round facing the singers, and flourishing his arm, began a long drawn out soldier's song, commencing with the words, Morning dawned, the sun was rising, and concluding, On then, brothers, on to glory, led by Father Kaminsky. This song had been composed in the Turkish campaign, and now being sung in Austria, the only change being that the words Father Kaminsky were replaced by Father Kutuzov. Having jerked out these last words as soldiers do, and waved his arms as if flinging something to the ground, the drummer, a lean, handsome soldier of forty, looked sternly at the singers and screwed up his eyes. Then, having satisfied himself that all eyes were fixed on him, he raised both arms as if carefully lifting some invisible but precious object above his head, and holding it there for some seconds, suddenly flung it down and began, "'Oh, my bower! Oh, my bower!' "'Oh, my bower knew!' chimed in twenty voices, and the castanet player, in spite of the burden of his equipment, rushed out to the front and, walking backwards before the company, jerked his shoulders and flourished his castanets as if threatening someone. The soldiers, swinging their arms and keeping time spontaneously, marched with long steps. Behind the company the sound of wheels, the creaking of springs, and the tramp of horses' hoofs were heard. Kutuzov and his suite were returning to the town. The commander-in-chief made a sign that the men should continue to march at ease, and he and all his suite showed pleasure at the sound of the singing and the sight of the dancing soldier and the gay and smartly marching men. In the second file from the right flank, beside which the carriage passed the company, a blue-eyed soldier involuntarily attracted notice. It was Dolikov marching with particular grace and boldness in time to the song, and looking at those driving past as if he pitied all who were not at that moment marching with the company. The hussar cornet of Kutuzov's suite, who had mimicked the regimental commander, fell back from the carriage and rode up to Dolikov. Hussar cornet Zerkov had at one time in Petersburg belonged to the wild set led by Dolikov. Zerkov had met Dolikov abroad as a private and had not seen fit to recognize him. But now that Kutuzov had spoken to the gentleman ranker, he addressed him with the cordiality of an old friend. "'My dear fellow, how are you?' said he through the singing, making his horse keep pace with the company. "'How am I?' Dolokhov answered coldly. "'I am as you see.' The lively song gave a special flavor to the tone of free and easy gaiety with which Zerkov spoke and to the intentional coldness of Dolokhov's reply. "'And how do you get on with the officers?' inquired Zerkov. "'All right. They are good fellows. And how have you wriggled on to the staff?' "'I was attached. I'm on duty.' 
Both were silent. She let the hawk fly upward from her wide right sleeve, went the song, arousing an involuntary sensation of courage and cheerfulness. Their conversation would probably have been different but for the effect of that song. "'Is it true that Austrians have been beaten?' asked Dolokhov. "'The devil only knows. They say so.' "'I'm glad,' answered Dolokhov briefly and clearly, as the song demanded. "'I say, come round some evening and we'll have a game of faro,' said Zerkov. "'Why, have you too much money?' "'Do come.' "'I can't. I've sworn not to. I won't drink and won't play till I get reinstated.' Well, that's only till the first engagement. We shall see. They were again silent. Come if you need anything. One can at least be of use on the staff. Dolokhov smiled. Don't trouble. If I want anything, I won't beg. I'll take it. Well, never mind. I only. And I only. Good-bye. Good health. It's a long, long way to my native land." Zerkov touched his horse with the spurs. It pranced excitedly from foot to foot, uncertain with which to start, then settled down, galloped past the company, and overtook the carriage, still keeping time to the song. End of Book Two, Chapter Two Book Two, Chapter Three of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Three. On returning from the review, Kutuzov took the Austrian general into his private room, and calling his adjutant, asked for some papers relating to the condition of the troops on their arrival, and the letters that had come from the Archduke Ferdinand, who is in command of the advanced army. Prince Andrew Bolkonsky came into the room with the required papers. Kutuzov and the Austrian member of the Hofkriegsrath were sitting at the table on which a plan was spread out. Ah, said Kutuzov, glancing at Bolkonsky, as if by this exclamation he was asking the adjutant to wait, and he went on with the conversation in French. All I can say, General, said he with a pleasant elegance of expression and intonation that obliged one to listen to each deliberately spoken word. It was evident that Kutuzov himself listened with pleasure to his own voice. All I can say, General, is that if the matter depended on my personal wishes, the will of His Majesty the Emperor Francis would have been fulfilled long ago. I should long ago have joined the Archduke. And believe me on my honour, that to me personally, it would be a pleasure to hand over the supreme command of the army into the hands of a better informed and more skilful general, of whom Austria has so many, and to lay down all this heavy responsibility. But circumstances are sometimes too strong for us, general." And Kutuzov smiled in a way that seemed to say, "'You are quite at liberty not to believe me, and I don't even care whether you do or not, but you have no grounds for telling me so and that is the whole point." The Austrian general looked dissatisfied, but had no option but to reply in the same tone. "'On the contrary,' he said in a querulous and angry tone, that contrasted with his flattering words, "'on the contrary, 
Your Excellency's participation in the common action is highly valued by His Majesty. But we think the present delay is depriving the splendid Russian troops and their commander of the laurels they have been accustomed to win in their battles." He concluded his evidently prearranged sentence. Kutuzov bowed with the same smile. But that is my conviction, and judging by the last letter with which His Highness the Archduke Ferdinand has honoured me, I imagine that the Austrian troops, under the direction of so skilful a leader as General Mack, have by now already gained a decisive victory and no longer need our aid," said Kutuzov. The general frowned. Though there was no definite news of an Austrian defeat, there were many circumstances confirming the unfavourable rumours that were afloat, and so Kutuzov's suggestion of an Austrian victory sounded much like irony. But Kutuzov went on blandly smiling with the same expression, which seemed to say that he had a right to suppose so. And, in fact, the last letter he had received from Mack's army informed him of a victory, and stated strategically the position of the army was very favourable. "'Give me that letter,' said Kutuzov, turning to Prince Andrew. "'Please, have a look at it.' And Kutuzov, with an ironical smile about the corners of his mouth, read to the Austrian general the following passage, in German, from the Archduke Ferdinand's letter. We have fully concentrated forces of nearly seventy thousand men with which to attack and defeat the enemy should he cross the Lech. Also, as we are masters of Ulm, we cannot be deprived of the advantage of commanding both sides of the Danube, so that, should the enemy not cross the Lech, we can cross the Danube, throw ourselves on his line of communications, recross the river lower down, and frustrate his intention should he try to direct his whole force against our faithful ally. We shall therefore confidently await the moment when the Imperial Russian army will be fully equipped, and shall then, in conjunction with it, easily find a way to prepare for the enemy the fate he deserves." Kutuzov sighed deeply on finishing this paragraph, and looked at the member of the Hofkriegsgrath mildly and attentively. "'But you know the wise maxim, Your Excellency, advising one to expect the worst,' said the Austrian general evidently wishing to have done with jests and to come to business. He involuntarily looked round at the aide-de-camp. "'Excuse me, General,' interrupted Kutuzov, also turning to Prince Andrew. "'Look here, my dear fellow, get from Kozlowski all the reports from our scouts. Here are two letters from Count Nostitz, and here is one from His Highness the Archduke Ferdinand, and here are these,' he said, handing him several papers. Make a neat memorandum in French out of all of this, showing all the news we have had of the movements of the Austrian army, and then give it to His Excellency." Prince Andrew bowed his head in token of having understood from the first not only what had been said but also what Kutuzov would have liked to tell him. He gathered up the papers and, with a bow to both, stepped softly over the carpet and went out into the waiting-room. Though not much time had passed since Prince Andrew had left Russia, he had changed greatly during that period. In the expression of his face, in his movements, in his walk, scarcely a trace was left of his former affected languor and indolence. He now looked like a man who has time to think of the impression he makes on others, but is occupied with agreeable and interesting work. His face expressed more satisfaction with himself and those around him, his smile and glance were brighter and more attractive. Kutuzov, 
whom he had overtaken in Poland, had received him very kindly, promised not to forget him, distinguished him above the other adjutants, and had taken him to Vienna and given him the more serious commissions. From Vienna Kutuzov wrote to his old comrade, Prince Andrew's father. Your son bids fair to become an officer distinguished by his industry, firmness, and expedition. I consider myself fortunate to have such a subordinate by me." On Kutuzov's staff, among his fellow officers and in the army generally, Prince Andrew had, as he had had in Petersburg society, two quite opposite reputations. Some, a minority, acknowledged him to be different from themselves and from everyone else, expected great things of him, listened to him, admired and imitated him, and with them Prince Andrew was natural and pleasant. Others, the majority, disliked him, and considered him conceited, cold, and disagreeable. But among these people Prince Andrew knew how to take his stand, so that they respected and even feared him. Coming out of Kutuzov's room into the waiting-room with the papers in his hand, Prince Andrew came up to his comrade, the aide-de-camp on duty, Kozlovsky, who was sitting at the window with a book. "'Well, Prince?' asked Kozlovsky. I am ordered to write a memorandum explaining why we are not advancing. And why is it? Prince Andrew shrugged his shoulders. Any news from Mac? No. If it were true that he has been beaten, news would have come. Probably, said Prince Andrew, moving toward the outer door. But at that instant a tall Austrian general in a greatcoat, with the order of Maria Theresa on his neck and a black bandage round his head, who had evidently just arrived, entered quickly, slamming the door. Prince Andrew stopped short. "'Commander-in-Chief Kutuzov,' said the newly arrived general, speaking quickly with a harsh German accent, looking to both sides and advancing straight toward the inner door. "'The commander-in-chief is engaged,' said Kozlovsky, going hurriedly up to the unknown general and blocking his way to the door. "'Whom shall I announce?' The unknown general looked disdainfully down at Kozlovsky, who was rather short, as if surprised that anyone should not know him. "'The commander-in-chief is engaged,' repeated Kozlovsky calmly. The general's face clouded, his lips quivered and trembled. He took out a notebook, hurriedly scribbled something in pencil, tore out the leaf, gave it to Kozlovsky, stepped quickly to the window, and threw himself into a chair, gazing at those in the room as if asking, why do they look at me?" Then he lifted his head, stretched his neck as if he intended to say something, but immediately, with affected indifference, began to hum to himself, producing a queer sound which immediately broke off. The door of the private room opened and Kutuzov appeared in the doorway. The general with the bandaged head bent forward as though running away from some danger, and making long, quick strides with his thin legs went up to Kutuzov. Vous voyez le malheureux Mac, he uttered in a broken voice. Kutuzov's face, as he stood in the open doorway, remained perfectly immobile for a few moments. Then wrinkles ran over his face like a wave, and his forehead became smooth again. He bowed his head respectfully, closed his eyes, silently let Mac enter his room before him, and closed the door himself behind him. The report which had been circulated that the Austrians had been beaten and that the whole army had surrendered at Ulm proved to be correct. 
Within half an hour, adjutants had been sent in various directions with orders which showed that the Russian troops, who had hitherto been inactive, would also soon have to meet the enemy. Prince Andrew was one of those rare staff officers whose chief interest lay in the general progress of the war. When he saw Mac and heard the details of his disaster, he understood that half the campaign was lost, understood all the difficulties of the Russian army's position, and vividly imagined what awaited it and the part he would have to play. Involuntarily, he felt a joyful agitation at the thought of the humiliation of arrogant Austria, and that in a week's time he might, perhaps, see and take part in the first Russian encounter with the French since Suvarov met them. He feared that Bonaparte's genius might outweigh all the courage of the Russian troops, and at the same time could not admit the idea of his hero being disgraced. Excited and irritated by these thoughts, Prince Andrew went toward his room to write to his father, to whom he wrote every day. In the corridor he met Nesvitsky, with whom he shared a room, and the wag Zerkov. They were, as usual, laughing. "'Why are you so glum?' asked Nesvitsky, noticing Prince Andrew's pale face and glittering eyes. "'There's nothing to be gay about,' answered Bolkonsky. Just as Prince Andrew met Nesvitsky and Zerkov, there came toward them from the other end of the corridor Strauch, an Austrian general, who was on Kutuzov's staff, in charge of the provisioning of the Russian army, and the member of the Hofkriegsrath who had arrived the previous evening. There was room enough in the wide corridor for the generals to pass the three officers quite easily, but Zerkov, pushing Nesvitsky aside with his arm, said in a breathless voice, "'They're coming! They're coming! Stand aside! Make way! Please make way!' The generals were passing by, looking as if they wished to avoid embarrassing attentions. On the face of the wag Zerkov there suddenly appeared a stupid smile of glee which he seemed unable to suppress. "'Your Excellency,' said he in German, stepping forward and addressing the Austrian general, "'I have the honour to congratulate you.' He bowed his head and scraped first with one foot and then with the other, awkwardly, like a child at a dancing lesson. The member of the Hofkriegsrath looked at him severely, but seeing the seriousness of his stupid smile, could not but give him a moment's attention. He screwed up his eyes, showing that he was listening. I have the honor to congratulate you. General Mack has arrived quite well, only a little bruised just here," he added, pointing with a beaming smile to his head. The general frowned, turned away, and went on. Gott wie knife! Good God, what simplicity!" said he angrily, after he had gone a few steps. Nesvitsky, with a laugh, threw his arms round Prince Andrew, but Bolkonsky, turning still paler, pushed him away with an angry look and turned to Zerkov. The nervous irritation aroused by the appearance of Mack, the news of his defeat and the thought of what lay before the Russian army, found vent in anger at Zerkov's untimely jest. If you, sir, choose to make a buffoon of yourself," he said sharply, with a slight trembling of the lower jaw, I can't prevent your doing so. But I warn you that if you dare to play the fool in my presence, I will teach you to behave yourself." Nesvitsky and Zerkov were so surprised by this outburst that they gazed at Bolkonsky silently with wide-open eyes. "'What's the matter? I only congratulated them,' said Zerkov. I am not jesting with you. Please be silent. 
cried Bolkonsky, and taking Nesvitsky's arm, he left Zerkov, who did not know what to say. "'Come, what's the matter, old fellow?' said Nesvitsky, trying to soothe him. "'What's the matter?' exclaimed Prince Andrew, standing still in his excitement. "'Don't you understand that either we are officers serving our Tsar and our country, rejoicing in the successes and grieving at the misfortunes of our common cause, or we are merely lackeys who care nothing for their master's business. Quaran mille o massacre el armee de no alliés de tui, et vous trouvez la la mot perir. Forty thousand men massacred, and the army of our allies destroyed, and you find that a cause for jesting, he said, as if strengthening his views by this French sentence. C'est bien pour un garçon de rien comme ce individu, do vous avez fou ennemi, mais pas pour vous. Pas pour It is all very well for that good-for-nothing fellow of whom you have made a friend, but not for you, not for you. Only a hobbledehois would amuse himself in this way," he added in Russian, but pronouncing the word with a French accent, having noticed that Zerkov could still hear him. He waited a moment to see whether the cornet would answer, but he turned and went out of the corridor. End of Book Two, Chapter Three. Book Two, Chapter Four of War and Peace, Volume One, by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Elmer Maud. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Two, Chapter Four. The Pavlograd hussars were stationed two miles from Bronau. The squadron in which Nicholas Rostov served as a cadet was quartered in the German village of Salzenek. The best quarters in the village were assigned to the cavalry captain Denisov, the squadron commander, known throughout the whole cavalry division as Vaska Denisov. Cadet Rostov, ever since he had overtaken the regiment in Poland, had lived with the squadron commander. On October 11, the day when all was astir at headquarters over the news of Mack's defeat, the camp life of the officers of this squadron was proceeding as usual. Denisov, who had been losing at cards all night, had not yet come home when Rostov rode back early in the morning from a foraging expedition. Rostov, in his cadet uniform, with a jerk to his horse, rode up to the porch, swung his leg over the saddle with a supple youthful movement, stood for a moment in the stirrup as if loath to part from his horse, and at last sprang down and called to his orderly. Ah, Bondarenko, dear friend," said he to the hussar, who rushed up headlong to the horse. Walk him up and down, my dear fellow," he continued, with that gay brotherly cordiality which good-hearted young people show to everyone when they are happy. Yes, your excellency," answered the Ukrainian gaily, tossing his head. Mind, walk him up and down well. Another hussar also rushed toward the horse but Bondarenko had already thrown the reins of the snaffle-bridle over the horse's head. It was evident that the cadet was liberal with his tips and that it paid to serve him. Rostov patted the horse's neck and then his flank, and lingered for a moment. "'Splendid! What a horse he will be!' he thought with a smile, and holding up his sabre, his spurs jingling, he ran up the steps of the porch. His landlord, who, in a waistcoat and a pointed cap, pitchfork in hand, was clearing manure from the cowhouse, looked out, and his face immediately brightened on seeing Rostov. "'Schon good morgen! Schon good morgen!' 
A very good morning, a very good morning, he said, winking with a merry smile, evidently pleased to greet the young man. Schon fleischig? Busy already? said Rostov with the same gay brotherly smile which did not leave his eager face. Hoch Ostreicher! Hoch Rusen! Kaiser Alexander Hoch! Hurrah for the Austrians, hurrah for the Russians, hurrah for Emperor Alexander! said he, quoting words often repeated by the German landlord. The German laughed, came out of the cowshed, pulled off his cap, and waving it above his head, cried, Und die ganze Welt hoch! And hurrah for the whole world! Rostov waved his cap above his head, like the German, and cried, laughing, Und vivat die ganze Welt! Though neither the German cleaning his cowshed, nor Rostov back with his platoon from foraging for hay, had any reason for rejoicing, they looked at each other with joyful delight and brotherly love wagged their heads in token of their mutual affection, and parted smiling, the German returning to his cowshed and Rostov going to the cottage he occupied with Denisov. "'What about your master?' he asked Lavrushka, Denisov's orderly, whom all the regiment knew for a rogue. "'Hasn't been in since the evening.' "'Must have been losing,' answered Lavrushka. "'I know by now, if he wins, he comes back early to brag about it but if he stays out till morning it means he's lost and will come back in a rage. Will you have coffee?" "'Yes, bring some.' Ten minutes later Lavrushka brought the coffee. "'He's coming,' said he. "'Now for trouble.' Rostov looked out of the window and saw Denisov coming home. Denisov was a small man with a red face, sparkling black eyes, and black tousled moustache and hair. He wore an unfastened cloak, wide breeches hanging down in creases, and a crumpled shako on the back of his head. He came up to the porch gloomily, hanging his head. Lavuska! he shouted loudly and angrily. "'Take it off, blockhead!' "'Well, I am taking it off,' replied Lavrushka's voice. "'Ah, you're up already,' said Denisov, entering the room. "'Long ago,' answered Rostov. I have already been for the hay, and have seen Fräulein Matilda. Really? And I've been losing, brother. I lost yesterday like a damned fool!" cried Denisov, not pronouncing his R's. Such ill luck! Such ill luck! As soon as you left, it began and went on. Hello there! Tea! Puckering up his face, though smiling, and showing his short, strong teeth, he began with stubby fingers of both hands to ruffle up his thick, tangled black hair. "'And what the devil may be go to that what?' an officer nicknamed the Rat, he said, rubbing his forehead and whole face with both hands. "'Just fancy! He didn't let me win a single card! Not one card!' He took the lighted pipe that was offered to him, gripped it in his fist, and tapped it on the floor, making the sparks fly, while he continued to shout. He lets one win the singles, and collars it as soon as one doubles it. Gives the singles, and snatches the doubles." He scattered the burning tobacco, smashed the pipe, and threw it away. Then he remained silent for a while, and all at once looked cheerfully with his glittering black eyes at Rostov. "'If at least we had some women here! But there's nothing for one to do but drink! If we could only get to fighting soon!' "'Hello! Who's there?' he said, turning to the door, as he heard a tread of heavy boots and the clinking of spurs that came to a stop, and a respectful cough. "'The squadron quartermaster,' said Lavrushka. 
Denisov's face puckered still more. "'Wetched,' he muttered, throwing down a purse with some gold in it. "'Whilst off, dear fellow, just see how much there is left and shove the purse under the pillow,' he said, and went out to the quartermaster. Rostov took the money, and, mechanically arranging the old and new coins in separate piles, began counting them. "'Ah, Telyanin, how do you do?' "'They plucked me last night.' came Denisov's voice from the next room. "'Where? At Baikov's? At the Rats?' "'I knew it,' replied a piping voice, and Lieutenant Telyanin, a small officer of the same squadron, entered the room. Rostov thrust the purse under the pillow and shook the damp little hand which was offered him. Telyanin, for some reason, had been transferred from the guards just before this campaign. He behaved very well in the regiment, but was not liked. Rostov especially detested him, and was unable to overcome or conceal his groundless antipathy to the man. "'Well, young cavalryman, how is my Rook behaving?' he said. Rook was a young horse Telyanin had sold to Rostov. The lieutenant never looked the man he was speaking to straight in the face. His eyes continually wandered from one object to another. "'I saw you riding this morning,' he added. Oh, he's all right, a good horse," answered Rostov, though the horse for which he had paid seven hundred roubles was not worth half that sum. He's begun to go a little lame on the left foreleg," he added. The hoof's cracked. That's nothing. I'll teach you what to do and show you what kind of rivet to use. Yes, please do," said Rostov. I'll show you, I'll show you. It's not a secret, and it's a horse you'll thank me for. Then I'll have it brought round," said Rostov, wishing to avoid Telyanin, and he went out to give the order. In the passage Denisov, with a pipe, was squatting on the threshold facing the quartermaster who was reporting to him. On seeing Rostov, Denisov screwed up his face and, pointing over his shoulder with his thumb to the room where Telyanin was sitting, he frowned and gave a shudder of disgust. "'Ugh! I don't like that fellow,' he said, regardless of the quartermaster's presence. Rostov shrugged his shoulders as much as to say, "'Nor do I, but what's one to do?' and having given his order, he returned to Telyanin. Telyanin was sitting in the same indolent pose in which Rostov had left him, rubbing his small white hands. "'Well, there certainly are disgusting people,' thought Rostov as he entered. "'Have you told them to bring the horse?' asked Telyanin, getting up and looking carelessly about him. "'I have.' Let us go ourselves. I only came round to ask Denisov about yesterday's order. Have you got it, Denisov? Not yet. But where are you off to? I want to teach this young man how to shoe a horse," said Telyanin. They went through the porch and into the stable. The lieutenant explained how to rivet the hoof and went away to his own quarters. When Rostov went back there was a bottle of vodka and a sausage on the table. Denisov was sitting there scratching with his pen on a sheet of paper. He looked gloomily at Rostov's face and said, "'I am waiting to her.' He leaned his elbows on the table with his pen in his hand, and, evidently glad of a chance to say quicker in words what he wanted to write, told Rostov the contents of his letter. "'You see, my friend,' he said, "'we sleep when we don't love. We are children of the dust.' But one falls in love, and one is a god, one is pure as the first day of creation. 
Who's that now? Send him to the devil! I'm busy!" he shouted to Lavrushka, who went up to him not in the least abashed. "'Who should it be? You yourself told him to come. It's the quartermaster for the money!' Denisov frowned and was about to shout some reply, but stopped. "'Wetched business!' he muttered to himself. "'How much is left in the purse?' he asked, turning to Rostov. Seven new and three old imperials. Oh, it is wretched. Well, what are you standing there for, you scarecrow? Call the quartermaster, he shouted to Lavruska. Please, Denisov, let me lend you some. I have some, you know, said Brostov, blushing. Don't like borrowing from my own fellows, I don't, growled Denisov. But if you won't accept money from me like a comrade, you will offend me. Really, I have some, Rostov repeated. No, I tell you and Denisov went to the bed to get the purse from under the pillow. "'Where have you put it, Wastov?' "'Under the lower pillow.' "'It's not there.' Denisov threw pillows on the floor. The purse was not there. "'That's a miracle!' "'Wait, haven't you dropped it?' said Rostov, picking up the pillows one at a time and shaking them. He pulled off the quilt and shook it. The purse was not there. "'Dear me!' Can I have forgotten? No, I remember thinking that you kept it under your head like a treasure," said Rostov. I put it just here. Where is it? he asked, turning to Lavrushka. I haven't been in the room. It must be where you put it. But it isn't. You're always like that. You throw a thing down anywhere and forget it. Feel in your pockets. No, if I hadn't thought of it being a treasure," said Rostov. But I remember putting it there." Lavrushka turned all the bedding over, looked under the bed and under the table, searched everywhere, and stood still in the middle of the room. Denisov silently watched Lavrushka's movements, and when the latter threw up his arms in surprise, saying it was nowhere to be found, Denisov glanced at Rostov. "'Wostov, you've not been playing schoolboy twicks!' Rostov felt Denisov's gaze fixed on him raised his eyes and instantly dropped them again. All the blood which had seemed congested somewhere below his throat rushed to his face and eyes. He could not draw breath. "'And there hasn't been anyone in the room except the lieutenant and yourselves. It must be here somewhere,' said Lavrushka. "'Now then, you devil's puppet, look alive and hunt for it!' shouted Denisov, suddenly turning purple and rushing at the man with a threatening gesture. If the purse isn't found, I'll flog you! I'll flog you all!" Rostov, his eyes avoiding Denisov, began buttoning his coat, buckled on his saber, and put on his cap. "'I must have that purse, I tell you!' shouted Denisov, shaking his orderly by the shoulders and knocking him against the wall. "'Denisov, let him alone. I know who has taken it,' said Rostov, going toward the door without raising his eyes. Denisov paused thought a moment, and, evidently understanding what Rostov hinted at, seized his arm. "'Nonsense!' he cried, and the veins on his forehead and neck stood out like cords. "'You're mad, I tell you! I won't allow it! The purse is here! I'll flay this scoundrel alive, and it will be found!' "'I know who has taken it,' repeated Rostov in an unsteady voice, and went to the door. "'And I tell you, don't you dare to do it!' shouted Denisov, rushing at the cadet to restrain him. 
but Rostov pulled away his arm, and with as much anger as though Denisov were his worst enemy, firmly fixed his eyes directly on his face. "'Do you understand what you're saying?' he said in a trembling voice. "'There was no one else in the room except myself. So that if it is not so, then—' He could not finish, and ran out of the room. "'Ah! May the devil take you and everybody!' were the last words Rostov heard. Rostov went to Telyanin's quarters. "'The master is not in. He's gone to headquarters,' said Telyanin's orderly. "'Has something happened?' he added, surprised at the cadet's troubled face. "'No, nothing.' "'You've only just missed him,' said the orderly. The headquarters were situated two miles away from Salzenek, and Rostov, without returning home, took a horse and rode there. There was an inn in the village which the officers frequented. Rostov rode up to it and saw Telyanin's horse at the porch. In the second room of the inn the lieutenant was sitting over a dish of sausages and a bottle of wine. "'Ah, you've come here too, young man,' he said, smiling and raising his eyebrows. "'Yes,' said Rostov, as if it cost him a great deal to utter the word, and he sat down at the nearest table. Both were silent. There were two Germans and a Russian officer in the room. No one spoke, and the only sounds heard were the clatter of knives and the munching of the lieutenant. When Telyanin had finished his lunch, he took out of his pockets a double purse, and drawing its rings aside with his small, white, turned-up fingers, drew out a gold imperial, and lifting his eyebrows, gave it to the waiter. "'Please be quick,' he said. The coin was a new one. Rostov rose and went up to Telyanin. "'Allow me to look at your purse.' he said in a low, almost inaudible voice. With shifting eyes but eyebrows still raised, Talyanin handed him the purse. "'Yes, it's a nice purse. Yes, yes,' he said, growing suddenly pale, and added, "'Look at it, young man.' Rostov took the purse in his hand, examined it and the money in it, and looked at Talyanin. The lieutenant was looking about in his usual way, and suddenly seemed to grow very merry. If we get to Vienna, I'll get rid of it there, but in these wretched little towns there's nowhere to spend it," said he. "'Well, let me have it, young man. I'm going.' Rostov did not speak. "'And you? Are you going to have lunch, too? They feed you quite decently here,' continued Telyanin. "'Now, then, let me have it.' He stretched out his hand to take hold of the purse. Rostov let go of it. Telyanin took the purse and began carelessly slipping it into the pocket of his riding-breeches, with his eyebrows lifted and his mouth slightly open, as if to say, "'Yes, yes, I am putting my purse in my pocket, and that's quite simple and is no one else's business.' "'Well, young man,' he said with a sigh, and from under his lifted brows he glanced into Rostov's eyes. Some flash, as of an electric spark, shot from Telyanin's eyes to Rostov's and back, and back again and again in an instant. "'Come here,' said Rostov, catching hold of Telyanin's arm and almost dragging him to the window. "'That money is Denisov's. You took it,' he whispered just above Telyanin's ear. "'What? What? How dare you? What?' said Telyanin but these words came like a piteous, despairing cry and an entreaty for pardon. 
As soon as Rostov heard them, an enormous load of doubt fell from him. He was glad, and at the same instant began to pity the miserable man who stood before him, but the task he had begun had to be completed. "'Heaven only knows what the people here may imagine,' muttered Telyanin, taking up his cap and moving toward a small empty room. "'We must have an explanation.' "'I know it, and shall prove it,' said Rostov. "'I—' Every muscle of Telyanin's pale, terrified face began to quiver. His eyes still shifted from side to side, but with a downward look not rising to Rostov's face, and his sobs were audible. "'Count! Don't ruin a young fellow! Here is this wretched money! Take it!' He threw it on the table. "'I have an old father and mother!' Rostov took the money, avoiding Telyanin's eyes, and went out of the room without a word. But at the door he stopped and then retraced his steps. "'Oh, God!' he said with tears in his eyes. "'How could you do it?' "'Count,' said Telyanin, drawing nearer to him. "'Don't touch me,' said Rostov, drawing back. "'If you need it, take the money.' And he threw the purse to him and ran out of the inn. End of Book Two, Chapter Four. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.